Welcome to the Modern Jewish Girl Podcast. I'm Jenna, lawyer by training, writer and teacher by choice. Originally from New York, I am a proud wife and mother living in the holy city of Jerusalem. Join me as we delve into the Holy Torah's teachings and apply them to our lives. I keep it short and sweet, but always deep. Welcome. Hi, welcome back. I know it's been forever and we have a lot of catching up to do, so let's just do that and then we can dive in. We moved here to Florida in August and I believe I recorded an episode before Rosh Hashanah, but I felt I had a lot to do with, you know, moving (laughs) and thank God we were expecting. And so I was busy with all that. And then on the day before Thanksgiving, I recorded a podcast episode and my plan was to put it out on Thanksgiving. I was due with the baby in early December. And then the very next day on Thanksgiving, I ended up going into labor and, and thank God, giving birth to a, to a healthy, um, beautiful baby girl. Thank God. And so I never got a chance to post that podcast. And then of course I was in the postpartum phase of uh, having a newborn. Um, so it's been, it's been hard to record, but throughout this whole time I felt so sad. And I also felt like something was really missing. And there's a lady named Victoria Dweck who writes for Ami magazine, if anyone knows of her. And she recently, she was writing for them for a while in the whisk, the cooking part of it. She was the editor in chief of that part. And she was writing her, the intros to that magazine every week. And they were such insightful, beautiful columns. And then she stopped. And I was so sad that she stopped writing because I really enjoyed her columns. They were inspiring. They were real. They were deep. I really looked forward to them every Shabbos. And she recently just started a new column in the Ami Living, the the women's magazine of the Ami. And she explained that, you know, she felt overwhelmed, whatever it was. There were reasons why she had to stop writing for a couple months. But then she realized there was this void. And then she was filling that void with like, you know, furniture shopping and like, you know, whenever there's a void, like it's just easy to get caught up in like materialism and, and things that aren't necessarily as meaningful. She said, especially as women. And she realized that she had to get back into writing and that she had spoken to a Rav who said that when Hashem gives you a gift, whatever that gift is, a creative gift, whatever, you know, we all have different gifts that Hashem gives us. We're obligated. We're actually, it's actually an obligation to use those gifts. So I feel very blessed. I feel like Hashem's given me a gift in terms of my writing and my my creativity and my love of Torah. And I feel that when I'm not using this platform, that I'm not necessarily using this gift that he gave me. So I apologize for that. I feel like I do have a responsibility to give over. And, and I'm sharing all of this in the hopes that if you have that feeling as well, that you have something, a skill or a talent that you're not expressing Uh, maybe this will give you the push or the inspiration to do that as well. So I'm really happy to be back. I can't say that I'm going to necessarily be able to post every week, but God willing, I am going to be posting more. And we are going to rebrand the podcast and the website. So look out for all of that because I definitely don't feel like a girl anymore. (laughs) Um, Thank God as as a mother of two children. So to dive into today's topic, we're going to be talking about Purim. And I want to talk a little bit about the story of Purim and something that we can take out of it. I'm, I'm working off of the Nesiva Shalom, the Slana Marebi. There's a book called Gems from the Nesiva Shalom. It's a whole series. There's um, all the holidays and, and Shabbat, really beautiful, relatable Torah ideas. Highly recommend. Okay, we're in ancient Persia. That's where the 
the Perm story takes place. It was the biggest empire at the time. And I'm quoting now from the Megillah that we read on Purim, Megillah Sester, and it says, All of the king's servants at the king's gate bowed down and prostrated before Haman because the king had commanded them to do so. But Mordechai did not bow down, nor did he prostrate himself. Okay, so Mordechai does not bow down to Haman. He refuses to do so, even though it was the, the law of the land at the time. You know, we're really, as Jewish people, we're not supposed to bow down <laughs> to other people. So by doing this, he led Haman to want to annihilate the Jewish people, which, of course, King Akashverosh wrote into law that the, the entire Jewish nation was going to be annihilated in one day. I mean, we're talking about a total holocaust. Now, think about yourself as Mordecai in that situation. Like, imagine if you didn't bow down to the king at the time, the king, you know, whoever the king or the president or whatever, and then he enacts this into law as a direct result. You would feel pretty bad. <laughs> you would feel like you caused this. Your actions cause this. And, and the Seba Shalom asked, he asked a good question. Like, how could Mordecai have justified this knowing he put the entire Jewish nation in danger? So <clears throat> an interesting sidebar, Haman had so much. He was the right-hand man to the king. He was super rich and He's so bothered by the fact that Mordecai, a Jew, won't bow down to him. And I'm going to read from the Megillah because I think it's such a powerful idea for today. He said he gathers his he goes home, he gathers his friends and his wife and he recounts to them the glory of his wealth, how wealthy he is and the large number of his sons, how he's blessed with children and all the ways in which the king has promoted him and the fact that he's elevated him above the officials and the servants of the king. And moreover, Haman tells him, no, but Queen Esther doesn't invite anyone else to accompany her and the king at the at the banquet she's prepared except for me. And he says, but all of this is not worth anything to me. At every moment when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate of the king. I mean, this is an unbelievable statement. Imagine being like one of the richest people in the land. You're the right hand man to the king. You're blessed with a bunch of children, you have everything a person could want, and you're bothered by a Jewish person sitting at the gate of the king who won't bow down to you? So I actually, my husband said this on Shabbat. It was a really beautiful idea that I wanted to, to put in here, that the gate of the king, the word king is an allusion to the king of kings, to Hashem, to God, when we see the word king in the story. Because actually God's name is not mentioned once in the Perm story, and that's a whole thing unto itself, how God is hidden, but really he's right here with us. And Perm really is about seeing God in the dark. So I actually heard a really beautiful idea, and I had a tangent onto a tangent, that on Hanukkah, I heard from David Sachs, a great Torah teacher in Los Angeles, who also has an amazing podcast. I think it's called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. You could check that out. It's really great. He says that on Hanukkah, it's dark and Hashem lights, turns on the light for us with the Hanukkah candles. But then everything goes dark again. And that's Purim. Everything is dark and we, we see Hashem anyway. That's what Purim is about. And we're going to get into that. So getting back to what we were saying about how Haman was not fulfilled with Mordecai sitting at the gate of the king, the gate of the king, my husband was telling me, represents the spiritual world. And a person could have everything in this world, power and money. But at the end of the day, if they're not connected to the source of life, they're not connected to God, 
they're going to feel an emptiness. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to fill them, which I think is a very important idea for today because we are very much living in a material world. So getting back to our original point, how could Mordechai refuse to bow down and put the Jews in danger? The Nesivo Shalom explains that Mordechai had absolute bitachon, trust, that his righteousness, meaning his refusal to bow down, was not really going to have bad consequences for the Jews. And where's the evidence for this? It actually says in the Megillah, Mordechai knew all that had happened. He knew that the annihilation had already been written and sealed with the seal of the king. And remember, we said king is an allusion to God, meaning not only did King Akashverosh sign this decree, but Hashem approved of this decree. He's enabling this decree to take place. So a divine Holocaust was planned. But we know if we've learned about Purim that why were the Jews really being threatened? The Jews were really being threatened because they were assimilating. And we went to, many Jews went to King Ahasuerus' party, which he was actually celebrating our inability to return to the temple in Jerusalem. And he was using items from the holy base Amigdash, from our holy temple, and desecrating them at this party. And Jews were going and enjoying themselves at this party. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before, how a lot of times anti-Semitism, which we're seeing a big uptick now, unfortunately, comes from when really on a deep spiritual level, Jews are assimilating and Hashem needs to wake us up and remind us who we are. So it's unclear. I don't know offhand if Mordechai knew that was really the reason or not. But he had trust that his own righteousness, like he was doing the right thing. He knew he should not bow down to Haman and he knew and trusted that as long as he was doing the right thing, nothing bad was going to come of that to him or the Jewish people. So I want to unpack this idea a little bit more. How do we know that Mordechai really had this level of trust? We see in the Megillah itself that Mordechai asked Esther to intervene with King Ahasuerus and try to nullify this awful decree and prevent the annihilation. And she's reluctant because if someone is not called to the king, they're risking their lives by going to the king without being called. And this is one of my the fa- my most favorite lines from the Megillah. And he, Mordechai tells Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and salvation shall arise for the Jews from another quarter, from another place, while you and your father's house shall perish. Meaning the Jews are going to be saved no matter what. Either you're going to be the messenger and have that merit, or you're not going to be. And you're not going to outlive this. The Jewish people are going to outlive this. So he knew very clearly in the beginning that the Jews are going to have salvation. And I want to dig a little deeper into this type of trust that he had. So we know there's concepts of amuna and bitachon. Amuna, faith. And again, I've, I've unpacked this idea. It's not just faith. It's faithfulness to what we know to be true, amuna. But it really describes Hashem's relationship to the Jews as a nation. It's the belief that Hashem created and actively manages the world and the belief that the Jewish people are his chosen people. And I know that's that the chosen people idea can be a hard concept. Again, anyone's welcome to join the Jewish people. I've spoken about this idea. Actually, one of my first episodes on Shavuos, I, I unpacked that idea of the chosen people a bit. If you're interested, you can go back. But Amuna is describing Hashem's relationship really to the Jews as a nation, whereas Bitachon is a higher level. It's describing the relationship of Hashem with each individual Jew. 
And it's trusting that Hashem will take care of all of our needs on a personal level and that everything Hashem does for us is for the best. And the Nesivo Shalom says that any Jew can have this level of trust. I mean, it sounds like such a high level. You know, of course, Mordechai had this trust. He was the Sadiq. He was the righteous one of the generation. But he's saying, no, any Jew can have this level of trust, no matter our spiritual level, because just like we're always Hashem's children, no matter how far we fall, part of what it means to be a Jew is that we can always access this level of trust that everything Hashem does for us is for the best. And he says, if we really have this level of trust, if we really tap into this, then the natural outcome is joy. Because we're confident that regardless of whatever challenges we're going through, we're going through it for a positive reason. We're becoming better people. There's going to be a positive result. Whatever it is, it's for a positive purpose, even if we can't fully understand it. And he says this type of joy that results from trust is really what it means to be happy with one's lot which, you know, we say, our sages tell us that who is rich, he who is happy with his lot. This is what it means to be rich in the, in the Torah definition. Our sages also tell us that when one is happy with one's lot, it brings a lot of reward to a person, both in this world and the world to come. The Nesivo Shalom says something even greater. He says this level of joy that stems from a Jew's belief that everything Hashem does is for his own good is the goal of a Jew's life. It's an unbelievable thing. The goal of a Jew's life is to have a deep belief that everything Hashem does is for his own good and, and to be joyful as a result of that. So all Jews have access to bitachon and simcha, trust and joy, but especially during the month of Adar. When the month of Adar arrives, the sages say, we increase our joy. And again, the source of our joy is the trust that Hashem is with us and he loves us and he wants our good. What's so beautiful is that just like we have 10 days to prepare before Yom Kippur, we have 10 days to prepare for Purim because we have Adar. And once Adar comes in, we're supposed to increase our joy and start getting into this mindset of connecting to Hashem in this way. And it culminates on Purim itself when we celebrate this relationship that we have with Hashem. The fact that we chose him and he chooses us and he loves us and we love him. I mean, it's such a beautiful day. I love Purim. I love the energy of Purim. And the Nesiva Shalom says something really crazy, which is that nowhere else do we find a holiday whose power really begins from Rosh Chodesh, from the first of the month. And if you think about what, if you ask anyone, you know, what's the holiest day on the Jewish calendar? Most people will say Yom Kippur. But what is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur literally means Yom, a day, Kippur, like Purim. It's a day like Purim. Our sages say that Purim's actually on a higher level than Yom Kippur, which is an unbelievable thing. So to sum up, the Nesivo Shalom is telling us that the Purim miracle, the fact that the Jews were saved, draws from the power of Bitachon, the trust that Mordechai had, that his refusal to bow down would not have any bad consequences for the Jews that the evil would be that apparently came from his righteous act would be transformed to good. And this caused the miracle of Purim. 
we have access to this level of trust that everything God does for us is for the good. And this level of joy that stems from a Jew's deep belief that everything Hashem does is for his own good is the goal of a Jew's life. And we can always access these ideas, but we can especially access them now during the month of Adar and especially on the holiday of Purim. And I just want to put out there that the holiday of Purim is a really special time to pray. It's a, a day of deep connection to Hashem. It's a day of prayer. So if if you have anything on your mind, it's it's very important to take a few minutes and just pray to Hashem from your heart. It's a really it's a really special day for that. We recently had a tragedy here in our community. Um, the assistant rabbi of our shul lost his nine year old daughter to cancer. It's very hard for me to speak about these ideas that everything is for the good. In a, and think about a situation like that, a horrible tragedy like that, where it really is very hard to fathom why something like that is for the good. A few times I was walking in our neighborhood and I passed the rabbi pushing his daughter in a wheelchair. And I expected to see, you know, a sad, tired looking girl. And instead what I heard was an animated, joyful child. It actually brought me to tears several times because I just wish she could be in school, you know, with her friends. But hearing the joy coming from this young girl who was who was literally fighting for her life. If she could be joyful, no matter what challenges we're going through, we can tap into that as well. So I actually wanted to dedicate this episode to the Aliyah of her neshama. Chaya Esther Tehila Bas Ariel Sapora. Her neshama, her soul should have an Aliyah, should ascend in Shemaim in heaven. I'm wishing you a Chag Sameach, a happy and joyful Param where you really feel connected to Hashem and feel how much He loves you. Okay, looking forward to being back soon. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, a review, and of course, share with your family and friends. Be blessed.